0: remain standing just one more moment as we read scripture we're going to read from the passage this morning from revelation chapter six and then we'll get into this text together now i watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and i heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder come and i looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, this one bright red. And its rider was permitted to take and slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of a fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth." When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete who had been killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth The great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This is God's word for us. You may be seated. Well, Nothing says Christmas like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> actually, we're continuing our study in the New Testament book of Revelation, walking through Scripture from start to finish. This is our custom. and uh, We're going to be shifting as we get closer to Christmas into more directly Christmas-themed uh, a, a message, but I would actually like to submit that this passage of Scripture may be more closely related to Christmas then it might appear on the surface. And hopefully by the time we're done this morning, that will make some sense to you as well. After all, the Christmas message came uh, into a world that was in desperate need of salvation. It's a message of great hope, precisely because this is a world that needs hope. You see, you can't really understand the good news of Christmas unless you understand the bad news that Christmas is supposed to be saving us from. That's really what this passage of Scripture this morning is all about. The world is, for many people, really for all people, a hard place to live at times. For some people, it's an immensely difficult and scary place to live. We need saving. This was brought home to me in a very vivid way. You know, it's, it's one thing to sort of look at statistics and, and be aware of kind of mass amounts of suffering in the world, but that, that's kind of hard to understand and connect with personally. This was sort of brought home to me personally uh, about 15 years ago when I made a couple of trips to South Sudan with a team of people from the church I was involved in at the time, Good Shepherd Community Church on the other side of the river. And one of the members, team members that traveled with me on this particular trip was an older gentleman. He had two teenage sons, one of whom had tragically been killed in a car accident in Gresham just about a year before we took this trip. So he had been processing through the grief of that, and, and he was, uh, we were doing a, a pastor training workshop for pastors and church leaders. There were probably, I don't know, 40 or 50 guys in this room, and and uh, my friend was teaching through an interpreter. Some of them could speak English pretty well and others not so much, so we, we talked uh, taught through a translator and and at one point he was bringing up his own loss, the loss of his son and, and he, he knew, he was aware that we were in a, a country that had been ravaged by war. Through the 80s and the 90s Sudan had Africa's longest running civil war. Just millions of people killed and millions more suffered in incalculable ways and so he was going to make a point of connection and at one point after describing the the, the story of his son he, he asked through the translator how many people in this room had, had a similar experience where they had lost, they had had to deal with the death of friends and loved ones. And the translator started translating the question, and then some confusion ensued. And, and a couple of the, the, the people who could speak more English were kind of going back and forth in their native language with the translator. And so even though we couldn't understand the words, we were sort of looking at him like, his question seemed pretty clear to me. And we couldn't understand what they were saying, but it was clear they were debating over the best way to translate the question. And, and this kind of went on for a minute, and lots of people started getting involved. And, and finally, uh, clearly two or three of them convinced the translator that, no, no, this was the question. And they all sort of laughed like, hey, okay, they got it. And then what happened next is I think what made this otherwise totally insignificant moment stand out in my mind. Because they all stopped looking at each other. They turned back to the f- front of the room where my friend was teaching. And I kid you not, every hand in that room went up. Every single hand. I figured a lot of them would go up. I didn't see somebody who wasn't raising their hand. It turns out, in retrospect, the confusion wasn't over the language. The confusion was over, like, really? Is that what he's asking? You see, for the Sudanese, back in the, the 90s, and this was now the early 2000s, they'd lived through the 80s and the 90s, The question was preposterous on its face. That's like asking, who breathed today? Everybody's lost somebody. Everybody has witnessed with their own eyes a close family member killed right in front of their face or starved to death. Like, that was normal. It was kind of a silly question at first. And I realized, that's not normal for me. That's not the world I live in. It's the world they live in. It made vivid to me that the world can be a very difficult place. This passage of Scripture, Revelation chapter 6, deals with a very complex and difficult subject. It's the subject of suffering. That's a sufficiently unpleasant and complex topic that there's, There's certainly no way we could say in any one sitting or any one sermon everything that can be said about that subject and everything that probably should be said about that subject. And it's so heartfelt by so many of us that at the end of the day, it's honestly an easier subject to just avoid altogether in churches and go and focus on more pleasant things. And that would be my default, to be honest. One of the advantages of preaching expositionally through books of the Bible is the Bible doesn't let you get away with being a coward, which I naturally am. And I'm grateful that in the Bible it deals with this subject of suffering multiple times in a complex, thorough, and honest way. Even this chapter this morning doesn't deal with everything that could be said about the subject, but it does tell us some things. And it's worth pointing out that for us culturally as modern Americans, um, our, our general American outlook on life doesn't really help us too much when it comes to thinking about or experiencing this topic of suffering and difficulty. Generally speaking, we have a pretty one-dimensional view as Americans. There's just exceptions, of course, but generally we look at suffering in pretty one-dimensional terms uh, or binary terms for you computer engineers, right? It's an on or an off. Suffering is bad. Not suffering is good. And if I'm in suffering, I want to get out of it. And I want to get out of it as soon as possible. And if I'm out of it, I want to stay out of it and and assure that I have enough security to maintain a a decent level of comfort. Consequently, Americans are often uncomfortable, even in churches, dealing with passages like this one we're reading here in Revelation chapter 6. It's worth pointing out that our, our cultural view isn't really wrong so much as it's just, it's incomplete. It's too little. I mean, it is true, biblically, that suffering is bad. God never intended suffering to take place. That was not part of his original design. That's very clear in Scripture. And his whole promise for a new heavens and a new earth is one in which suffering will be gone. So it's not that we're so much wrong. Suffering is bad, and not suffering is good. It's just that there's a lot more to it than that. And the, com- the, the, the situation gets a lot more complex very quickly once we begin thinking about it. That's what the Bible's going to show us. Today we're going to look at, in this chapter the first six seals of the scroll that we saw in chapter 5. We talked about that last Sunday. The scroll represents God's purposes for humanity in a sinful world. God's purposes for humanity throughout human history. And it was sealed up by seven seals. Well, this chapter is going to pick up that imagery and we're going to see the first six of the seven seals broken and each time one of those seals is broken it introduces a vision for God's purposes in this sinful world. So there are six short visions in this chapter. The first four go to together. They come fairly quickly. The last two are very different, and they kind of slow down a little bit. What we're going to do this morning is try to walk through those first four very quickly, just get enough of an idea of what's going on, and then make a couple of comments about all four of them together at the end, and then see how that moves into a very different vision in the fifth and sixth seals, because the point of all this, we're going to try to avoid getting too lost in the details, and instead catch the sort of flow of thought in the chapter, because there is one, There is one, and I trust you'll see that as we move through this. Each one of these visions kind of builds on the ones that came before to make a point to Christians who were in the first century. So with that in mind, let's dive right in and see if we can make a little bit of heads or tails out of all of this symbolic imagery and what it's saying about God's purposes for the world. Well, these first four seals come very quickly. Not much is said about them. Uh, The visions uh, all go together and it turns out that they are none other than the famous Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse." Anybody ever heard that phrase before? Doubtless you have. You're certainly familiar with that phrase if, if you're a fan of English literature. Uh, quite often throughout English literature, the, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse was sort of a, 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 almost became a cultural icon. It's, it's, a, it's a fixture in a lot of English literature. You may also be familiar with that if you are a fan of Marvel superhero movies. Now, contrary to what the folks at Marvel Studios said last May, these are not the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. (laughs) But any fans of the movie X-Men Apocalypse, no offense, I didn't see the movie, but I did see the trailers, and I'm familiar with the uh, premise of the film. And sort of the idea was that we got, the the Bible got the idea for Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse from uh, a powerful ancient mutant who's out to destroy the world. Probably a pretty cool... um, Premise for a superhero film, but doesn't really have too much to do with real history. No, in fact, we get the idea of four horsemen of the apocalypse from the Bible right here in Revelation chapter 6. Here's maybe a little bit more realistic depiction of it, uh, still very symbolic. This is a painting that was done at the end of the uh, 1900s, or sorry, 1800s, uh, end of the 19th century. Again, not perfect, but just an artist's kind of imagining based on this uh, passage of scripture what's being said here. Each horseman, every time one of these seals is broken, we see a rider on a horse, and that vision sort of symbolizes one of God's judgments on sinful humanity that takes place throughout history. These are describing life in a broken world. Now, it's worth pointing out that there are some Christians who believe that all of these judgments are yet future and haven't happened yet, and that's fine, I don't think that's the right reading, and hopefully you'll see that as we go through here. Good news is the bottom line of the passage comes out the same either way. These are judgments of God on sinful humanity throughout history. And we'll see that as we go. Let's just jump right into the first one. This first horseman is, is emblematic primarily of war, of war. He's a horse and a rider. He's got a bow, so he's a warrior. He's got a crown, so he's a king. And it's specifically said that he goes out to conquer. And it's a pretty clear reference to the fact that all throughout history, including in the first century, and frankly, in every century since then, so much of history has been defined and shaped by one group or tribe or nation going to war against and dominating and conquering another. And power shifts through combat, and thousands, tens of thousands, millions even die. That was what was brought home to me when we were in South Sudan. Their world was so different because their nation had been ravaged by war in a way that mine had not. War is one of the judgments of God on a sinful world. Second horseman comes out. He's emblematic probably more of, of civil unrest or breakdown of society. There's some overlap there. These, these four aren't to be pressed too literally. They, they overlap some. But what all that's said about him, uh, other than the fact that the horse is red, is that he is given a sword and he is permitted to take peace from the earth so the picture seems to be that there's stability and there's peace in the society you know you have law and order you have you know police and security forces that maintain law and order you have courts and you have laws and you have governments that that basically create a stability that creates safety for everybody but in certain places in the world or in certain societies where that stability breaks down you get rioting you get anarchy you get chaos property is destroyed and yes people die One thinks of places in the world today like Yemen where the Yemeni government is actually not in control of a vast chunk of the territory that is officially the country of Yemen. Parts of it are controlled essentially by local warlords who do as they please and answer to no one. Or parts of Central and South America today where whole swaths of land are really controlled by drug cartels, not by the legitimate uh, nation states. And life in those areas is full of drugs, full of violence, and nobody answers to anybody but the drug lords. Certainly that's been the case in South Sudan. That's why we've got two freshwater wells that are destroyed because for a period of time, the very fragile social uh, system broke down and chaos ensued. And even though calm has now been restored, people are now suffering because when society breaks down, suffering results. The third horseman is emblematic of famine, pretty clearly. Uh, He said to be riding on a black horse, he has scales in his hand. Um, The prices that are quoted for food here, of course, don't mean a whole lot to us. A quart of wheat for a denarius, a denarius was a coin back in the Roman Empire, but what does that mean? Uh, All the Bible scholars that I looked at and historians are basically saying that the prices quoted here are anywhere from 8 to 15 times what food probably would have cost in the first century when this was written. So it's a picture of, of hyperinflation. Uh, Food is very scarce, and so money has essentially become worthless. You just can't get enough food to survive. And so once again, there's some potential overlap here. Maybe there's famine as a result of war. These don't have to necessarily be different things, but the point is the Bible is describing this is a kind of world that we live in where people deal with this kind of stuff, and they suffer for it. According to the United Nations uh, updated statistics, today... In the 21st century, one in nine people worldwide don't have enough food to live a healthy and active lifestyle. That's more than 10%. The vast majority of those, of course, being in what we consider to be developing countries. And the World Food Program says that poor nutrition causes about half of the worldwide deaths of children under the age of five every year. You get kids who die before their fifth birthday in the world today, half of them, to the tune of three million children a year, the primary cause is malnutrition. That's the world we live in today. The final horse is actually named. We don't have to guess or speculate as to who he is. He's called Death. Death himself comes out on a horse with Hades, which is the first century way of referring to the grave, essentially, behind him. There's so many references here to Old Testament passages. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, uh, chapter 14, verse 21, lists four judgments that God will send on his rebellious people. The judgment of sword, the judgment of famine, the judgment of disease, or sometimes called pestilence, it just means disease, and the judgment of wild animals. And those are all four of the judgments we see listed here on this fourth horseman. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, pestilence, and wild animals. Again, this overlaps with these other three horsemen. The the symbols aren't to be pressed too literally, but do you kind of get the idea? God is saying that this is the kind of world we live in because of sin, And notice that they are given, uh, death is given rain over a fourth of the people on the earth, meaning, not that that's like a literal statistic that exactly 25% of some group of people is going to die or something like that, because I'm not even sure how you would measure that. The idea is that not everybody suffers directly from all of these judgments. Not everybody's going to die, but some people do. In fact, a lot of people do. Enough so that it makes the world a really scary place to live, even for the three-quarters of people, or so, uh, symbolically, who may not die. The world is a scary place to live for everyone. So these are four judgments God sends on a sinful world. Now let me just point out three quick things about these four horsemen uh, to help us move on. A lot could be said. We'd be here all day if we looked at every detail of every symbol. Here's what I think is important in order to kind of grasp where I think the Bible's trying to take us here. First of all, notice that these judgments from God, it's it's, it's sort of a heaven's eye perspective on the whole world. These are kind of universal, worldwide judgments. They're not specific. They're not localized. They're not aimed at certain parts of the world or individual people or even groups or nations of people. They're global and they're worldwide. And that becomes important because it helps us understand what not to take away from a passage of Scripture like this. What this means is we should be very uh, reticent, in fact, we shouldn't do it at all, I think, to look at a passage like Revelation chapter 6 and say, oh, if I see somebody or some group of people suffering, that must be God's judgment on them because of their sin. That's not what this passage is saying at all. Back in the early 2000s, after Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast of the United States, caused huge destruction. A lot of people died. There was one or two, probably well-intentioned, but in my judgment, not very thoughtful Christian leaders who had a platform and went on record as saying they believed Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment on the United States because our culture had become sufficiently decadent that he was giving us the business. That's not what this is saying. That's not what this is saying, because you can flip that around too. We in the U.S. certainly face far less famine and far less war in terms of our experience of it than people in Sudan do. But it is not at all because we are far more virtuous and they're just awful people. You see, these judgments aren't directed at individuals or even nations or groups of people. It's a worldwide thing. The picture being painted here is that all of humanity is sinful because all of us have rejected God as God. All have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of God's glory. And the consequence is that the world we live in is broken by sin and God judges the world. It will occur in some places more intensely than others, but it's a general statement about life in a broken world. Secondly, you can't mistake the fact that God is seen to be sovereign over all of these judgments. This is one of the first places where we begin to realize that the idea of of suffering in the world is a more complex one than we might at first like it to be. We'll say more about that in just a few moments. But note the language in each one of these descriptions. This uh, horseman was permitted to do thus and such. It was given to this horseman to do this and such. These these, uh, horsemen, symbolic of these sort of plagues, were not able to fully unleash uh, their power, as it were, on the earth until God said, okay, you can do this much. And he does give them that permission. He is sovereign over it. Now, God does not create war. His purpose is not to create famine or suffering. That's the result of sin. That's the curse on the world. Human, sinful human hearts create evil and suffering. But God is sovereign over the consequences, the corrosive consequences of sin and evil in the world. That's very clearly the picture that the scripture is painting for us. He's restraining it at some points and alternately relaxing the restraint at other points to let it do what it does. That's the picture that's being painted here. And it's worth pointing out that on the one hand, that maybe makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Like, I don't understand how a good God can do that. It's also worth pointing out on the other hand that that's actually intended to be good news. At this point, we're like, what? (laughs) What? That's good news? Yeah, that's good news. Because remember who this was written to. This was written to a group of seven churches in the first century, all of whom were suffering in various ways because they were Christians. Some were suffering more, some were suffering relatively less, but all of them were suffering, and for many of them, it didn't seem like there was any hope. And after all, they were God's people. They had given their lives to God, and if God is in control, then giving their lives to God should result in their lives getting better, you would think, but that's not what happened. Not only did their lives not get better, their lives got categorically worse. Because now I'm being persecuted as a Christian in a way that I wouldn't be persecuted if I wasn't a Christian. God, how are you letting this happen? And the God's sovereignty over these judgments is his way of telling those churches, no matter how awful it looks, I've still got this. It may not look or feel like God is in control, but he's saying, let me peel back the curtain and give you the heaven's eye view. I am still in control. Finally, These judgments, because they're worldwide, fall on the Christian and the non-Christian alike. Again, back to what, what would this have meant to the original readers? If we're going to ever understand what a book of the Bible says, you've got to start with what it's referring to, what it's meant for, and how its original readers would have understood it before we can then draw lessons for how people today are to understand it. These seven churches, uh, the members of these seven churches had given their lives to God. Their lives had become, in many ways, miserably worse, not better. And in essence, what the Bible is telling them here is, yeah, that's how life in a sinful, broken world works. The promise for following me, Jesus told those churches over and over again, if you endure to the end, you will conquer, you will inherit eternal life. There will be no more suffering then, but in the meantime, this is all part of the plan. When you live in a broken world, you experience brokenness. That's how it works. Jesus himself had said to his followers the night before he died, John chapter 15, verse 18, that this would happen. He said, the world has hated me. It hated me so much, it's about to kill me, which they actually then did just a few hours later in the most brutal fashion he suffered. But then he tells his followers, the world hates me so much, and because you follow me, it's going to hate you too. So just as you see me suffer, you two are going to have to suffer because we're sent out on the same mission. Friends, you see, this is all ultimately centering on the gospel of Christ that our Lord and Savior was God. He had everything and he left it to come be a man and experience suffering in this world. And that is the means by which he overcame sin and death. He experienced it. Jesus conquered by being conquered. That's the paradox of the gospel and of the Bible. The lion, remember from chapter 5, is a slain lamb, the ruling king of the universe is actually a sacrificial weak lamb. He rules by his sacrifice. He turned his own suffering and death on the cross to victory. And so when God came into this world, he didn't just defeat the, uh, the destruction of mankind's sin by like waving his God wand and zapping it. Like I'm going to come down here and I'm tired of this sin and this death stuff. I'm just going to make it all right. He actually said, I'm tired of all this sin and death stuff, so I'm going to experience the consequences of sin. He did not sin, but he took on mankind's sin, the suffering, and the death as a re- that resulted from it. And he said, I will endure that and experience that. That's the path to victory. This brings us back to one of the main messages I talked about from the book of Revelation a few weeks ago when we started it that suffering is the path to victory. Over and over again, we see Revelation painting that picture. It's painting it right here. Suffering is the path to victory. That was true for our Lord. It is true for our Lord's followers. The one who is now sovereign over suffering and death experienced them firsthand. That's the gospel. And as followers carry on that mission. As Christians, we live in a broken world thus experiencing the brokenness of the world along with everyone else, while we proclaim that Jesus alone is the antidote to the world's brokenness. Even still, you wonder, but how long? Why? That's exactly what God's followers are thinking, which leads us into the fifth seal. Now we mentioned these first four were all together and they're kind of a unit. Now when we move to the fifth seal, everything changes. It's totally different. It's actually not a judgment of God at all. The scene shifts from earth to heaven. And now John gets this vision wherein he sees the souls of Christians who have suffered for Jesus. In fact, they paid the ultimate price. The people that he sees a picture of are people who had been killed because they were Christians. And they were murdered. Horrific injustice and violence was done against them. And they didn't just pay a price for following Jesus. They paid the ultimate price. They paid with their lives and yet they refused uh, to back down on their commitment to Christ. They stayed true to him until the end. And they're pictured as being there in God's throne room, crying out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our deaths? Now, it's important to understand that these martyred Christians, as we call them, Christians who were killed simply because they're Christians, they're not crying out for revenge. Although it might kind of sound that way on a quick read-through. They're not just like, God, somebody treated me horribly, go get them because out of just spite and anger, I want to see that person who killed me just get squashed by you. It's not personal revenge they're crying out for. It's justice they're crying out for. In other words, God, how long are you going to let the world be the kind of way you just described with these four apocalyptic horsemen? How long are you going to let the world be a place where innocent people die? Where people like us are killed when it looks like we didn't deserve to be killed that way. What they're really saying to God is, God, you're just and you're powerful. Notice they call him, in uh, verse 10, sovereign Lord, holy and true. God, you're the God of justice, and yet you're letting injustice go unpunished on the earth. Our murders were unjust, and you have not made that just. That, that makes you look bad. It makes you look unjust. It's not right how Long. How much longer are you going to let this go on? When will you make the world right? God has two responses to them. First of all, he gives them a white robe, which earlier in chapters 2 and 3, white robes were referred to over and over again. We mentioned this briefly back then uh, as uh, the, the, the garment of a conqueror. Oftentimes, people who won athletic games back in the first century would be given a white robe. It's a picture of being the conqueror or the victor. They were given the white robes. They were the ones who did what God told all the churches to do, stay faithful to the end and pay no matter what cost it pays. He says, you've conquered, and you conquered the same way I conquered. You were willing to suffer for my name. And that's what he calls us all to. They represent, in many ways, all persecuted Christians as those who paid the ultimate price. Every Christian who has to pay something because he or she follows Jesus are sort of represented by this group who paid everything. And he says, stay faithful through what you have to endure until the end, and then you will receive your reward. But then their question is answered. They're told to wait a little longer. Again, herein is some of the Bible's complexity when it comes to the presence of evil and injustice in a world over which the good and just God is sovereign. Sovereign. God promises that he will indeed right every wrong and justly punish every injustice, but not quite yet. But not quite yet. And then he says wait a little while until their number should be complete. Remember. This scene is one of the seals of the scroll being broken. And the scroll being broken means the scroll's being opened. And the scroll we talked about last week was God's purposes, his plan for a sinful, broken world. What is God doing in history about humankind's sin? All of these seals each represent some of the things that God is doing in his plan. Part of God's plan is that his people would experience the suffering and the brokenness of this world while they testify to the gospel. That's what Jesus said in John 15. That's what John is seeing pictured now in a uh, a visionary image here in Revelation chapter 6. God says there is a number, there is a limit that's part of my plan of people, Christians who will actually be killed is directly what he's talking about here, because they are Christians. It's like God says, I know that that's going to happen, and I factored that into my plan. I am sovereign even over the murder of my innocent followers simply because they're Christians. But there is a number, which means it's not infinite, and it will not go on forever. God's patience with sin does have a limit, and there will come a time when enough Christians have been killed for their faith that God says enough enough no more suffering and no more death we're done here that's not yet they are told but it is coming and and as we see the thought then get developed by these visions that leads us to the sixth and final seal the final one we're going to look at this morning in this chapter which I take to be a, um, a picture of the final judgment that God will institute on the earth someday in the future. Everybody understands this is a picture of something God is going to do in the future. Whether you think he'll do more after or not is debated. I think this is clearly what he's talking about at the final end time judgment. And that becomes clear in a lot of the language that's being used. Uh, this The verses in, in, in verses 12 to 17 draw so heavily from the Old Testament. There's literally more than a dozen allusions to Old Testament passages. We don't have time to go over them all this morning. Let me just give you three so you can get some kind of an example. The sixth seal is all this, this, this cataclysmic cosmic destruction. And all of that language is coming straight out of the Old Testament prophets. Here's just a couple examples. Isaiah chapter 13 verse 10 and several other Old Testament passages refer to the sun, the moon, and the stars being darkened in the great day of God's judgment when he will end all sin and evil. Uh, Isaiah chapter 34 4 refers to the sky being rolled back like a scroll. That language is coming straight out of the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And by the way, in the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, the, trump shall, the sky will be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. That language is coming right out of Isaiah 34. The picture is the idea that like, like God is finally just going to rip the lid off of the earth. He's just going to open up the sky and come straight down and deal with sin once and for all. That's the image there of the sky being rolled back. And finally, Ezekiel chapter 38 verses 19 and 20 and many other Old Testament passages refer to the time of God's judgment as a tremendous earthquake where the most stable thing in this world is shaken to its core. We'll see that recur many more times in Revelation as well. Finally, the language at the end, verses 16 and 17, where these sinners who are being judged on the earth Say, hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne, that's God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, that's God the Son, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Again, that is language pulled directly out of many, many Old Testament prophets that God will one day show his wrath against sin and evil and he will judge evil and he will end it and he will make the world holy and right. We were waiting, the Old Testament prophet said, we're waiting for that day, the day of the Lord. Well, now here we got a vision where the day of the Lord is here. And all, even the most powerful, notice the list of people uh, in verse 15 starts and centers on the powerful people, the kings. Uh, the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful. These are the people who are most likely prosecuting some of the evil against God's people. And then everybody who's left on the earth at that point, both great and small, sinners face the judgment of God's wrath. Now, do you see how the, 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 the flow of thought progresses here? The first four seals, we live in this broken world. The fifth seal These martyred Christians sort of represent all Christians and saying, God, how long is this going to go on? And he says, a little while longer, but don't worry, hold on, because I will end it. And then he gives them a picture of the final end. I will end it. It is coming. The sixth seal looks forward to the final destruction of evil that ushers in heaven for all eternity. It serves as a promise to the persecuted Christians of the seven churches that God will one day judge all evil and right every wrong. Ushering in a new heavens and a new earth in which the experience of living there is very different than the four horsemen experience he just described earlier, where we live in this world that's characterized by things like war and, and, and societal breakdown and famine and where people suffer all the time and it's a scary place. He says the new heavens the new earth won't be like that. That's the place that we're waiting for. So in summary, let's pull back and think about this. Churches that are suffering in the first century are essentially told three things, at least, in this chapter. First, they're told that God is in control. That's what these images that God is sending John are designed to communicate. I'm in control. It looks that way or not, feels that way or not, at any given time, I am in control. Secondly, one of the main themes of the book of Revelation is put front and center here. For the Christian darkness comes before dawn darkness comes before dawn we long to be in the place where there is no injustice there is no evil where every tear is wiped away from people's eyes and suffering and pain are no more for the old order of things that passed away that's revelation chapter 21 describing the new heavens and the new earth that's where we want to be and he says we're headed there but we're not there yet we're not there yet Because Jesus is our model. He suffered, he was killed, and then he was raised to eternal glory. And then he sends us, his followers, on the same path. We're not all called to be killed for Jesus, but every Christian is called to endure the suffering of brokenness in a sin-cursed world while we proclaim that Jesus is the only answer to the brokenness of a sin-cursed world. Here's how Jesus put it in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. His cross may be different than her cross, may be different than their cross, but every Christian has a cross, a symbol of Jesus' suffering. He says, you have one too. Follow in my footsteps. And whatever I have called you to endure, endure for my name's sake because your very endurance of it points ahead to a life that is much better. Thirdly, that's our third point. God will bring an end to injustice and to suffering and to death in his own good time. Of that, the Bible says, we can be sure And in that confidence, Christians place their hope. You know, I hope that by going back to what some of the New Testament apostles have written, some of the things that Jesus said in the Gospels, what some of the Old Testament prophets wrote, I hope that that emphasizes the unity of the Bible because everything in the book of Revelation is coming from somewhere in Scripture. There's virtually nothing new in this book. Its way of communicating is a little different. A lot of powerful symbolic imagery that you don't typically find in too many other places of the Bible. But the message that's being communicated is exactly the same over and over and over again. We see the essential message of Revelation chapter 6 reflected in the New Testament epistle of 2 Peter chapter 3. The question of the martyrs in verse 10, how long, O Lord, has taken up repeatedly in Scripture as it is in 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me close with this. 2 Peter 3, verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You know what that's saying? People are saying, yeah, there's supposed to be this just God that's going to take care of everything, but it shouldn't look like he's taking care of anything to me. The Bible keeps saying God's going to come fix it someday, but it's been a long time and I haven't seen him, so I don't think he's really there. Or if he is, he doesn't care, he's not going to take care of it. That's a very understandable question from a human perspective. The Bible deals with it. Drop down to verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The first thing we're told is that God's ways are not our ways. And his sense of timing is most certainly not our sense of timing when I experience pain or suffering or see somebody I love experience injustice or pain, I want them out of it. I want them out of it yesterday. God says a little longer. And the guy who says that isn't bound to time the way that I am. God is not subject to our modern American senses of time, to our sort of instantaneous microwave-like expectations of how soon something should get done. He has a plan for all of humanity and for all of human history that is right on track. The Lord is not slow, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, to fulfill his promise the way that some people count slowness. But here's the hope, guys. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God not ending the suffering of the world today? Well, that's a complicated question, and this doesn't answer all of it, but the Bible does give us at least part of the answer, sort of the big picture answer. And the big picture answer is, because ending evil in the world means ending evildoers in the world. Because where does evil come from? It comes from sinful human hearts. So if he's going to make sure there's no more evil in the world, he's got to make sure there's no more sinful human arts. He's got to take sinners out. But if he takes sinners out, nobody's left because how many people are a sinner? Everybody. And so in his patience, he's putting up with the injustice. He's sovereign over it. He's even using it to accomplish his purposes of purifying his people and calling people to repentance. But he will deal with it. In the meantime, he is as it were, artificially withholding his final judgment so that more and more men and women have the opportunity to repent, to embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and to escape that final judgment when it does come. He's doing it out of mercy. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 that the fact that God has not judged me ultimately and sent me to hell for my own sin is itself the kindness of God. And that kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. This is not everything we can say about the subject of suffering, but one thing the Bible says, I believe very clearly, is that evil continues in the world because God in his mercy has given us Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's presence means that we can repent, And we can escape the just punishment for our sin. Instead of getting eternity separate from God in hell, which each person deserves, the Bible tells us, we get eternity of joyous bliss in God's presence, which we don't deserve. Jesus deserves that. He was the only human being who lived that sin. But in Christ, we take his inheritance. He shares it with us, and we become his brothers and sisters, the Bible says. We share in his inheritance rights. We become the sons and daughters of God. Not because of what we deserve, because of what he did. What a blessed, joyous message. And God says, I'm holding off dealing with all injustice until enough people have finally repented and enough injustice has been done that someday it's going to end. First Peter 3 concludes in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and nobody's expecting it. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be exposed. But according to his promise, verse 13, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you see the connection to Christmas? How good a news is it that God became man and entered our world in order to suffer and to die and make a way for you and I to not suffer and not die for all eternity? We are kind of a natural... um, section break in the book of Revelation and so I mentioned at the outset we're going to kind of do it in three chunks this is the end of the first chunk for the next few weeks we're going to shift gears and do some more directly Advent and Christmas related things and then we'll resume our study of the book of Revelation after the first of the year but I hope that even in walking through this chapter six of Revelation maybe we see that it isn't quite as much of a a case of mental whiplash to go from Merry Christmas to the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, as it might at first appear to be. The Bible's message is unified, and God's purposes for a sinful world is to end suffering and death through his son's experience of death on the cross. The message of Christmas rings out in a world that is sorely in need of a Savior. I'd like to ask the worship team to come up to lead us in a song of response, and let me close with the lyrics to a Christmas carol as the team is coming up. Um, Stanzas four and five of the Christmas song, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, read like this. Think about Revelation 6 in the back of your mind as you listen to this. Referring to the proclamation of the angels, peace on earth and goodwill to men, Jesus is born. The poem goes like this. Yet with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. Beneath the angels' strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And man at war with man hears not the love song that they bring. Oh, hush the noise, ye men of strife, and hear the angels sing. And ye beneath life's crushing load, whose forms are bending low, who toil along the climbing way with painful steps and slow, look now, for glad and golden hours come swiftly on the wing. Rest beside the weary road and hear the angels sing. That's the hope of Christmas. Would you stand with us?